Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to today's focus for Tuesday, January the 24th, 2023, at 12.23 p.m. Central Time. Today's focus, 1954, meet 2023. 1954, meet 2023. This will be the last time we talk about 1954 and 2023. Well, at least as far as this kind of mini-series is concerned. We're going to try to bring this mini-series to a maybe not so much a dramatic conclusion. I don't think this has really captured the imaginations of the, the imagination of the listeners. I think most have kind of went, yeah, yeah, whatever. I don't really care. I thought it was something fascinating. Like when I read the article, I'm like, oh, wow. These points were written in 1954. Wow. They sound like they could have been written today in 2023. So I know what I'll do. I'll take these seven points that were written in 1954 and say, hey, let's let's talk about them in 2023. And everyone will be like, whoa, that's interesting. That's interesting. Well, what about this? And what about that? And what about this? And what about that? And it didn't really quite, well, didn't go as planned. But that happens. That happens sometimes. When you do as much live broadcasting as I do, sometimes... You hit a home run, sometimes a triple, sometimes a double, sometimes a single, and sometimes you strike out. But what can you do? I'm just going to keep standing at the plate swinging. Yeah, is is the baseball analogy too forced? I don't know. Should we just throw out the baseball analogy? Maybe we should. The point is, sometimes I... I stumble upon something that a lot of people are interested in, and sometimes I stumble upon things that maybe I'm more interested in. But since it's my microphone, <laughs> then sometimes I'll just talk about what I'm fascinated by. So I thought this was interesting. So let's we're gonna we're we're gonna review. Now I know the review is gonna take a little bit, but I'm gonna explain what we are doing and then try to bring this to some kind of an important conclusion. And I I really, I hope at some point you'll give these things some serious thought because I do think it's very interesting and there's just a lot of theological implications on all of this. But let me remind you. Dr. Chester Tulga, T-U-L-G-A, Dr. Chester Tulga, a Baptist fundamentalist, wrote a seven-point conclusion to his 1954 booklet, the Doctrine of Right and Wrong in These Times. Seven-point conclusion to his 1954 booklet, The Doctrine of Right and Wrong in These Times. As of this live broadcast, I've yet to find a copy of that 1954 booklet. I'm trying to find it because I would like to see everything he said about the doctrine of right and wrong in these times. And please note, he wrote the doctrine of right and wrong in these times and the times he was referring to was 1954. What's fascinating is much of what he writes about 1954 sounds like 2023, which to me seems to indicate that sometimes when people look back to the past, we so 
romanticize the past as like, don't you remember the good old days when the good old days weren't really that good? And so it also demonstrates that many of the issues we're facing today were the same issues being faced in 1954, which raises an important question. Why were the same issues being faced? Meaning that the issues that they that we're facing today, we want to sometimes blame the issues we face today on liberal politicians, on Netflix, on TikTok, on Instagram, on social media, on the educational system, on we 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 music, you know, you we name we we video games, we find something and sometimes you'll have to go, wait, these problems existed. Before Facebook, before Instagram, before TikTok, before video games, before social media. So maybe sometimes what we have a tendency to do is we look for the, the, the villain. We like, we have to create a villain. That's the villain. That's the cause. And sometimes we place the blame on something that isn't the actual cause or or the thing that is causing the problem it's like we're placing the blame on something that's not really it's not its fault it's not it's not the fault of that the fault lies somewhere else and i would argue that and i think this is important i think this is a very important theological distinction christians for some weird reason we seem preoccupied we seem seem obsessed to find the new villain to blame. And we place the blame on that which is external when the real problem is internal and the real problem is inside you and me. The the criminal, the villain, the killer is inside the house. The phone call is coming from inside the house. It's inside us. It's called depravity. It's the depraved nature that's the problem. But we always want to put the blame on this or that. And, I, and I'm, I've grown tired of that game. I mean, look, what was it, a year ago, two years ago? Critical race theory was good. That was the cause of everything. Critical race theory was good. CRT was the, was the and it's like, wait, is that really the, the greatest threat to the church? And books were written. And of course, people, of course, wrote books, sold their books so they can make money. Well, and we, we always have to have the newest and latest boogeyman, right? We have to have, to have the new, newest and latest you know, serial killer, like in a, in a horror film, right? We've got to have the, the latest villain. We got to have the, the newest Michael Myers or Jason or Freddy, you know, borrowing from, from horror films of the past. We have to, and the Christianity, we have to create, and that, that has to be the thing we go after. When I, when I was a teenager, MTV, MTV, MTV was going to bring down the end of the world. It was MTV. In the 90s, it was Marilyn Manson, and it was video games. In the 80s, the video games were really wasn't seen as the, the major problem. But in the 90s, that became the issue. And you just, it's always something. Then it was Netflix, and then it social media. And I'm not saying these things don't have... There, there aren't issues surrounding them, but though to me, those things that you point to as being the cause of the problem are simply the symptom of the problem. What we point to as the cause is really the symptom. The cause is human depravity. 
So I love pulling up these old documents where they're talking about, man, the church is a mess. People are a mess and it's all these problems. And sometimes even then they'll be like, it's the theater that like, that's the problem. Everyone goes off to a theater to watch a play. That's the, they're playing, whatever their issue they're blaming. And you look back going, I don't think that was the problem because we have the same problem in 2023. The problem is inside all of us. We have to be better at diagnosing the problem. It's human depravity. These things that we blame are simply the symptoms of human depravity. They simply reflect human depravity. We somehow want to act like those are the things that cause it. My kids are not going to be corrupted by cable television. Remember when Christians were screaming that? We will not have a television. What? Your kids already corrupted, ladies and gentlemen. The corruption is inside. They were born with it. They were conceived in sin. I I know when I say this, Christians lose their mind, but it's like we either look at these situations theologically or we don't. So let's look at what he was complaining about in 1954. Here we go. Remember, number one, he says, our times, remember our times is 1954, are characterized by deep uncertainty concerning truth and morality, resulting in an alarming moral confusion, which has corrupted the world and deeply affected the churches. All right. He says, wait, there's, there's moral confusion that is sweeping the nation and the church. Well, what causes a, 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 confu- a moral confusion? What causes moral confusion is our own depravity, which wants that constantly seeks to change moral absolutes to our liking. We constantly, I, I sometimes make this joke, but it, I, I believe the origin of the quote is from Voltaire. I could be, I could be, I, I may have to be corrected on there. I don't know the origin of the quote, but it goes something like this. God created man in his image and we return the favor, <laughs> all right? God created us in his image and we return the favor. What does that mean? Well, then we recreated God into our image. God created us in his image and then we turned around and said, we will recreate you into our image. Because of our depravity, wherever the moral absolutes are, we seek to change them, to modify them into our image, into our liking, according to more in line with our thinking about morality. But it's as a result of our depravity. Moral confusion is not, listen, the blame of society. The moral confusion in society is the blame of human depravity. I think that's rather profound. Now, you you may disagree, but I think it's rather profound. All right, here we go. Number two. The prevailing liberal theology of our day reflects this moral confusion and its emphasis upon love rather than holiness and its disregard of ethical values and formulating its doctrinal views and its tolerance of sin and the lives of its ministers and churches. Again, they want to blame liberal theology, but there, there's always in all of us, in every church, there we, we do a... We, we do a lot of modifying moral standards. Sometimes we create moral standards that are not even in the scripture. And then sometimes we create moral standards and we're not even consistent in the application of said standard. Because no matter, no, look, God has given us his word and no matter whether you like it or not, these are, these are the two extremes. Here's God's word. He's given us his law. He's given us his moral absolutes. Here's what happens. Either one, 
There is a push or a move within the human nature, within our depravity, to just reject it outright. I'm not following those rules. I'm going to do my own thing. I'm going to do my own thing. Okay? And I'm just going to live in rebellion and sin. I don't care what God's word says. I'm not going to follow it. I'm not going to listen to it. That, that's a part. Our depravity has a tendency to do that. But there's another equal and opposite error. Well, then others come along and say, it's God's word. And then guess what we do? We go straight Pharisee on everyone, right? We act like the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And we start adding rule after rule after rule after rule. And that has nothing to do with God's word. Either we reject it or we start adding to it. Once again, demonstrating that the moral confusion has something to do inside of us. Right, so I'm going to read number two again. The prevailing liberal theology of our day reflects the moral confusion and its emphasis upon love rather than holiness and its disregard of ethical values in formulating its doctrinal views and tolerance of sin in the lives of its ministers and churches. And I believe the prevail there's another theology that became very legalistic and placed its emphasis on rules instead of biblical understanding of holiness. But all right. Number three. The evangelical world, with its shallow knowledge of the very theology which it professes to believe and defend, has been deeply affected by relativism and both truth and morality, resulting in moral and ethical antinomianism, often connected with the more fervent professions of orthodoxy. Once again, talking about, hey, within the evangelical world, they almost went to a moral antinomianism. But again, in many cases... What we did or what was done within fundamentalism was to fight this went to a legalism because we always go to extremes because of our own sinful depravity and confusion. All right, number four, the liberals and the neo-orthodox, knowing that they have abandoned the biblical basis for truth and morality, often offer many and varied schemes whereby moral reconstruction can begin, none of them adequate to the task. Number five, this is the one we talked about yesterday. The confusion concerning truth and morals has resulted in in the glorification of compromise, the decline of moral indignation, and a general atmosphere of mutual exoneration in which sinners reassure each other uh, when convicted of wrongdoing. Men are exhorted to trust one another indiscriminately, regardless of whether they are worthy of trust. Basing the exhortation upon a too optimistic view of human nature, men are exhorted to use the positive approach to avoid the negative, for presumably there is some sort of uh, imminent divinity in man to which these values appeal. Basically claiming that what happens within Christianity is a denial of human depravity. Now, I believe that is true. I believe that there's a constant denial of human depravity in so many different ways, right? Either, hey, You either teach people are basically good or you just give rule after rule after rule and say that people can obey these rules, which once again is a denial of human depravity. Like on one hand, there's a denial of human depravity that says people are basically good. And then there's another denial of human depravity that will say, well, people are sinners, but here's God's law and we can do it. We can obey it, which then becomes a denial of human depravity because because of our human depravity, we can never truly obey God's law. That's why we need the gospel, but you get it. All right. Now here's number today. We come to number six and number seven, number six and number seven. All right. I know I kind of went through those relatively quick. I know there's a lot to unpack in all of these. Um, we will, um, I'll try to get the, these seven points put into a PDF file 
and then you know i don't know maybe i'll um i'll i'll just record a quick episode and attach it to that episode or maybe maybe what i'll do if i can get the if i can get this turned into a pdf file what i'll do is i will attach the pdf file to this episode and it will be uploaded to the church one app You'll look for this episode, which I think is uh, 1954 meet 2023 part four, and I will attach the PDF file, and then you can look at all seven of these uh, points of conclusion from 1954, and you can just think about them, meditate on them for yourself and what you think the implications are. But here's number six. The Christian basis of morality, long since abandoned by the world and the liberal church, It's based upon the nature and character of God. The moral law set forth in the scriptures, the perfect example of Christ, the moral sanctions of the heart, and the ethical strivings of the spirit of God in the believer's heart. So let's go through this again. The Christian basis of morality, long since abandoned by the world and the liberal churches, and this is what the Christian basis of morality is, according to them. It is based upon the nature and character of God, the moral laws are set forth in the scripture, the perfect example of Christ, the moral sanctions of the heart, and the ethical strivings of the Spirit of God in the believer's heart. So they're saying, basically, they're giving all the different things that are the basis of Christian morality. Now, you could look at each one of those, and we may could have some issues with some of those. But the bottom line is, for the Christian, the basis of morality is God's word. The basis of morality is God's word. We understand that. Now, on, now, this is the question. Should that morality, and, and, and this, is, this is something the church has struggled with through, for, throughout really church history. Some believe that basis of morality, which is God's word, should be imposed, should be forced by law, by political bill, that it should be imposed upon the lost and the unregenerate heart. And I know, I know all law has a level of morality to it, but I think for the most part, the last thing we want is to try to impose biblical morality on the unregenerate. What the unregenerate need is the gospel. They need salvation. For them, the law is to show them their sin, which drives them to Christ. Then we teach them that this is how we are to live. And this is the standard which we are to strive for. So some believe that the basis of morality is to be imposed on the lost world. And I reject that. I reject that. The lost world doesn't need morality. The lost world needs salvation. The law of God is to show them their sin and then drive them to Christ. Then when they become saved, then we give them the law of God saying, now this is how we are to, this is what we are to strive for. This becomes the basis of our morality. I think that's very important, all right? And now, so I so I, I think, yes, I do agree. The basis of morality um, has long been abandoned by the world. Though, I, listen, I think the biblical standard for morality has always been abandoned by the world. I, I, think, it's re, I think it's foolish to think the world was ever falling, following biblical morality. Oh, they may, have, they may have understood the scripture teaching, but the basis of morality within the world has always been their own desire and their own perception of things. It's their own depraved nature. 
That's why, that's why we see so many atrocities. I don't care if you're in the 1940s to the 1950s. I don't care if you're in the 1500s or the 700s. Horrible things happen within society because their morality is always abandoning God's word. And it's the human depraved heart that puts forth laws and rules and the wild, weird, inconsistent application of said laws. So I do believe the world has abandoned it. But this is very important. For Christians, we must understand that the biblical basis of morality, which is the law of God, we all fall short of it. Christian and non-Christian alike, because the law of God is perfect and demands perfection, which we will never, never achieve. Never. We can't. Even as a, even as a saved person, you cannot keep God's law. God's law demands perfection inwardly, outwardly. It can, it can, it, it, it demands a perfection that's exact, that is entire, that is perpetual. To break one of God's law, you're guilty of all of them. We are in a perpetual state of disobedience and sin. That's why the law is to drive us to Christ and we are saved by an imputed righteousness. See, for some weird thing, many Christians see morality as the ultimate goal, like they see Christianity, the, the ultimate purpose of Christianity is to give us morality so that we will all live moral lives. But the ultimate purpose of Christianity is to bring the gospel to people who cannot keep God's law so that we can be saved by faith, by an imputed righteousness. It's salvation, not morality. But I do believe the world has abandoned it. And I do believe we, we all, listen, we all abandon God's morality over and over in our own heart. So number six is the Christian basis of morality long since abandoned by the world and the liberal church. I think even in the most legalistic conservative church, in some ways they still abandon God's basis of morality because we create our own morality and our own form of legalism. All right. But it's based upon the nature and character of God, the moral law set forth in the scripture, the perfect example of Christ, the moral sanctions of the heart, and the ethical strivings of the spirit of God in the believer's heart. Now, number seven. Here we go. The moral obtuseness of the day. Now, obtuseness, that's an interesting word, right? How many times do you use the word obtuse? I don't think I ever use the word obtuse. So I had to look it up, all right? Obtuse. Here we go. Obtuse. 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 It means annoying, annoyingly insensitive or slow to understand. So insensitive or slow to understand. So now let's go back to the, uh, the statement. The moral obtuseness, in other words, they're dull, they don't understand, of the day that when it comes to morality in 1954, there was a moral obtuseness. They did not really understand it. They were insensitive to morality. This moral sluggishness of human nature. So they refer to it. He refers to it as the moral obtuseness and the moral sluggishness. That's his word. The moral sluggishness of human nature. Now, I, when I, and now I have a problem with referring to human nature as being morally sluggish. The human nature is not morally sluggish. The human nature is morally depraved. Okay. It is, it is, 
uh, the opposite of sluggish. Uh, well, that's not uh, uh, that's not fair. It's not the opposite of sluggish. It is it is more than sluggish. It is completely stopped and it is depraved and it is corrupted. The opposite of sluggishness would be quick. Okay, so it's not the opposite of, but you get the idea. Now, let me read this again. The moral obtuseness of the day, this moral sluggishness of human nature, the easygoing tolerance of liberalism, the soft antinomianism of our day must be met and corrected by the provision set forth in the word of God by which, through the word of God and the spirit of God, redeemed men can live lives acceptable to their creator and savior. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy. Oh boy, we've got problems. We got problems right here in River City, ladies and gentlemen. We've got trouble right here in River City. Yeah, I'm making a reference to the music man. Okay, all right. We've got problems. Oh, we got problems. Now, listen to me carefully. This has been true. And we've talked about this all the time on this podcast, and you've heard me talk about it in sermons. Here's an absolute historical fact. Throughout the history of the church, whenever a certain theological problem or moral problem or whatever the issue is, whenever a problem or issue arises within the church, without fail, without fail, the solution typically always leads to an equal and opposite error. Whatever the truth is. So if you look around and you're like, man, the world, the, the church has become morally sluggish. The church has become morally obtuse. The church has, has this moral liberalism where it just, it's just tolerating sin. Without fail, you're going to, the solution is going to go to an equal and opposite error, which will be some form of legalism or some form of a moralism and biblical gospel will get trampled underfoot because everyone's running to a, a to a solution and it's always a, it's insane to me to watch this happen whatever the problem may be you just sit back and watch whatever the problem is you just look to christianity and and the, the solution always goes to an equal and opposite error now let's see if we can detect the opposite error in this point. The moral obtuseness of the day, this moral sluggishness of human nature, the easygoing tolerance of liberalism, the soft antinomianism of our day must be met and corrected by the provision set forth in the word of God by which through the word of God and the spirit of God, redeemed men can live lives acceptable to their creator and savior. So the solution is we get back to the word of God so that Christians can live a life in practice that is acceptable to God, our savior. Well, wait a minute, or God, God and savior, or, or no, wait, our creator and savior. That's the exact words they use. I don't want to uh, misrepresent what's being said. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. This goes back to this Christian idea that as a believer, you can live a life that is pleasing, that is, in their words, acceptable to your creator and to your savior based off what you do. 
I'm sorry, your life in practice will never be acceptable to your creator and savior because your life in practice always falls short. If you're guilty of one point of the law, you're guilty of all of it. Even our good works are nothing but filthy rags before God. Everything we do is tainted by sin. The only way our life can be acceptable before God is because we are covered in the imputed righteousness of Christ. This is the idea that, look, this moral sluggishness, this moral obtuseness, this this liberal tolerance of sin, it must be met with a moralism. And now the focus doesn't become about the gospel. The focus becomes on law, law, law. You will do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Don't do this, do this, don't do this. And we don't meet the moral, the moral relativism with a legalism. We don't meet, we don't face, we don't combat moral relativism with, with morality. We face moral relativism with the Law and gospel properly understood and properly utilized. The law shows me my sin. The gospel is the solution of my sin. And the gospel solution is not so that I will live better. The gospel solution is that Christ's perfect life is accredited to my account and I'm covered in the imputed righteousness. Not that the gospel brings an infused righteousness, which is Roman Catholicism, but that it's an imputed righteousness, which is what we supposedly is what we teach. See, that, that, that point sounds so good. But when you say that redeemed men can live lives acceptable to their creator and savior, my life is only acceptable because of the imputed righteousness. God, to be acceptable before God, I would have to be, what is the biblical command? It's repeated, it's stated in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. Be ye holy as God is holy. That's the Old Testament, New Testament. Jesus on the Sermon on the Mount said, be ye perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Okay, well, that, that's a demand for perfection. Well, my life will never be acceptable to God based off that standard because I'm imperfect, but in Christ, I am perfect. My good works are never good enough. So the answer to the moral obtuseness and sluggishness of human nature and easygoing liberalism and the supposed antinomianism of the day cannot be, oh, we just need more law and we need more rules. It has to be a proper understanding of law and gospel and my acceptance before God. My pleasing God is because I'm in Christ Jesus. Now, the things I do, hopefully I do by faith, right? And you could say, because of faith in Christ somehow makes my work a ple pleasing to God in some way, shape, or form. But just know that whatever work I do is still tainted by sin. My only hope of truly being acceptable to God is because I'm in Christ Jesus. His, his passive and active obedience is imputed to me. So in Christ, I am perfect. I'm perfectly obedient. In Christ, I'm perfectly holy. In Christ, I am perfectly righteous. In Christ, I am perfectly forgiven. In Christ, in my position, I am a new creature in Christ. Old things have passed away, all things become, become new. In practice, I'm not a new creature because the old nature still remains and I continue to sin. 
So these seven points, he's worried about the, the reality of the world around him, which is there's depravity, there is sin, and there's moral relativism. But what is the solution to it? Now, this article ends with this paragraph. Our responsibility today as faithful Christians is to declare to all believers and unbelievers alike the truth that truth does exist and that it can be known, regardless of what anybody says or believes. God has declared the truth concerning his person and work. God has declared the truth concerning man's origin and nature. God has declared the truth concerning his remedy for man's sin problem. God has declared the truth concerning righteous, godly living. God has declared the truth concerning the end times and what to be expected. God has declared the truth concerning the reality of heaven and the reality of hell. The truth is found only in his word to man, the Bible. We are not left in the dark. Well, I agree, but we are to proclaim that truth. But when we see a moral relativism, a moral obtuseness, a moral sluggishness, we can't go to legalism. We can't destroy the law-gospel distinction. The law shows us our failure. The gospel provides us the solution to that failure, which is an imputed righteousness, not a practical righteousness. The law does tell us how to live as a believer. It does call us to pursue this. We are to pursue it. But it must be the law of God, not our, our, our additions to it, not our adding things to it. And we have to realize, even in our attempt to live it out, we do so in a very, very inconsistent and weird way where we sometimes say this is wrong while this isn't wrong. We have to just realize our own failure in even handling it. 1954 meets 2023. The problems in 1954 are the same problems we face in 2023. In 1954, some of their solutions went to an equal and opposite error, just like in 2023, many of our solutions go to an equal and opposite error. In 1954 and in 2023, we have a tendency to place the blame on some external villain that we make the boogeyman of the month and we blame it when the real when those things that we point to in society are not the problem or the cause of the problem they're a symptom of the problem the problem is inside you the problem is inside me which is human depravity and the solution is not that we will live moral lives the solution is that we would be saved by the imputed righteousness of Christ now you can email me news if at yahoo.com news if at yahoo.com that's news if at yahoo.com would love to get your thoughts about all seven points if we can get these turned into a pdf file then soon they will be upload that the pdf file will be uploaded to the church one app and underneath this episode attached to this episode will be the pdf file of these seven points and I want you to think about, meditate on them, and love to get your thoughts about them. So we'll try to get that done soon. Uh, as always, contact me. Love to hear from you. Questions, thoughts, perspectives, anything. Please email them to me. All right. Thanks for listening. The good news is it's almost 1 p.m. 
And we've been having this weird thing at 1230 p.m. on the dot. The Internet has kind of done a temporary like go down and immediately come back up. And that did not happen. So whatever was occurring, hopefully they've gotten that fixed because that's the only time we've ever had any problems. So that's good news. All right. I feel like I'm supposed to say something rather profound here, but hopefully you found something very useful and helpful in this discussion about 1954 meets 2023. Now I've placed it before you. That's what I want you to focus on today. I can't wait to hear your thoughts. Everyone have a great day. God bless.